Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Rorag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Today I'm talking to Stephen Brain from Mambana in Western Victoria. Stephen and his wife Sue have managed since 1980 a self-replacing herd which targets high quality marbling markets. Stephen grew up between Mullora and Lake Bolac in Western Victoria on a mixed enterprise family farm with merinos, Angus cattle, cropping and an earth moving business. He studied humanities at Ballarat University and psychiatric nursing at Lakeside before moving back to the family farm and then later on to Mambana. Stephen is a classic ideas man with the ability to be able to sort the good ideas from the bad and implement the good ones always keeping things simple and targeted to his end goals. Welcome to the Raw Rag Podcast, Stephen. I'm actually not in the studio and Stephen is, um, and we're recording via Zoom. So um, it's a little bit different. How are things with you, Stephen? How are things at home? Uh, very good at the moment, Tom. Um, we've just had uh, 17 mils overnight, and um, which is a follow-up to rain that we've had in the last couple of weeks. So uh, we're away. We've got our autumn break and uh, set up for another good season by the looks of it. And that's nice and early for you in um, south western, western Victoria, isn't it? It is, yes. It's, well, it's, it's probably better than average, I'd say. So and we've had the last few years have been better than average as well. So we're and rocking so and rolling. Been, so you'll have, still have plenty of soil, moisture, uh, soil temperature because we battle that a little bit, don't we, later on in the winter? It can happen. Um, we've, we've just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I've sod-seeded 40 hectares of um, ryegrass, clover and loosen into an existing um, phalaris stand to bulk it up a bit more and uh, mix the species up a bit, and that's coming along really well. And whereabouts is home exactly, Mumbana? Mumbana is um, about 30 k's east of Mount Gambier. Um, we're on the south of the Princess Highway um, and we're on basically Stringy Bark and Heath, or what was Stringy Bark and Heath country, so very sandy soils, but, but uh, well-drained soils. So um, we might get back into talking about your pastures and things in a bit, Stephen. Uh, what I wanted to get on with was uh, perhaps um, you've got um, an interesting um, business. I've, um, you sort of have a knack at keeping things simple but sort of um, also implementing um, new ideas and um, it's quite a fascinating place to visit. You're um, concentrating pretty heavily on supplying um, marbled beef to um, to that uh, particular sector of our industry. How did you um, come up with that? Because it's not everyone's cup of tea, marbling. Um, you've embraced it. Well, I guess um, back in 1992, my wife and I and um, our 12-month-old daughter, Marty, 
at the time went to visit a family friend in Japan who'd married a Japanese guy and they were living in Hamamatsu. And um, so in going over there, we got to see the type of meat that Japanese were uh, selling in their supermarkets. You know, it was $100 a kilo for marbled beef then. Um, I got an opportunity to go to um, <clears throat> Tokyo and I um, met up with uh, Ralph Hood, who was um, the head of the AMLC in Tokyo at the time, and uh, had a meeting with him and uh, we talked about well, he showed me what was happening with the Aussie beef campaign in Japan and that was a real insight. And um, when we got back to Hamamatsu, uh, Masataki, who was our host, he um, took me out to a, a, a Kobe beef steakhouse and um, I just found it incredible. Uh, we, we sat at a bar and grill and they cooked the, uh, an inch cube of uh, Kobe beef in front of us and uh, like about three or four seconds on each side of the cube and then basically um, you'd put it in your mouth with chopsticks and and eat it and it was an incredible eating experience the meat was so tender uh, juicy and flavorsome that it just uh, well blew my mind I guess you know what an eating experience it was and uh, from that time on coming back to Australia um, we started chasing the marbling in our cattle and uh, we were buying cattle at Tamania at the time and um, so that's where, where it began really. I think uh, Tamania basically had you know some of the highest marbling genes in the business so that's how we got into it basically. It would have been tempting wouldn't it to have um, gone perhaps to Wagyu's? I did consider that um, However, I didn't want to have two herds running. I thought that was too complicated. And I, uh, I think that the, 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 the meat quality of an Angus is quite different to that of a, uh, a Wagyu, I think. Um, the, I much prefer to eat a well-marbled Angus steak than a, a well-marbled Wagyu one. Um, I find the wagyu tends to congeal, the fat congeals more in the meat as it, as it cools down and the way we eat meat in Australia is quite different to the way the Japanese tend to eat it. Well, they eat very thin slices of their beef um, whereas we tend to eat you know, a piece of meat. So I don't know, that, that was my reasoning I think. And so um, you're growing grass and putting it down the neck of something, it may as well have a bit more value. Is that where you, you know, why you chased it? Well, it seemed to me that the highest value in the beef industry is in the highest marbling, marbled carcasses and uh, started looking at Rangers Valley, I guess, which is sort of running the main, the main long-fed feedlot program in Australia. And... Yeah, the, the, the well-marbled carcasses, well, Wagyu were making, you know, over $10,000 at the time per carcass. And uh, so I just figured that that's the higher value chain to follow. And uh, that's where we've gone, I guess. And then uh, some few years later after being in Japan, um, Andrew and Mary caught up with Andrew and Mary Gubbins, your parents, and um, they were talking about getting the team started and we got into Team Tamania and 
the great thing about the team is that uh, is the ability to um, have a say in what what particular genetics you, you what market you're chasing, and um, seemed to me Tamania had the the higher marbling genetics in the industry, so we went down that path. I also like the philosophy that Andrew and Mary were talking, which is you know like um, finding the genetics that actually produce the highest quality carcass and so that's 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 where we went with that so there's a genetic component to getting marbling right um if you don't have marbling in your genetic in your cattle it's very hard to make the marble but once you do get the genetics in there there's environmental things to do as well what sort of things do you do before the animals leave to go to rangers valley to ensure that the animals are the best they can be environmentally for rangers valley um, well, I think we keep them growing on a, a rising plane of nutrition uh, as much as possible. Um, the steers uh, are going, are being rotated in the grazing system every two or three days, so they're, they're coming off, going into a three tonne per hectare pasture, dry matter, and then being taken out, you know, it's about 1.2 or 4, something around there so that they're constantly being fed through the winter and um, they get preferential treatment over all the other stock uh, on the farm. Um, we, we're achieving um, about 500 kilos at 13 or 15 months by using that system. And, and if, we are, if we're having a, a difficult year, we tend to uh, uh, put nitrogen ahead of of the the program so that we've got grass we've we've always got grass in front of those animals so uh, also for rangers valley very good at reporting back to you um do you get you get feedback sheets and do you make decisions and things from those feedback sheets or you know basically they are they guides to show you that you're on track uh i think they're guides are showing we're on track i think the gene pool at tamania is, is you know it's well through our whole cow herd it's you know 25 years of of selective breeding for marbling we, we've always um always looked at the marbling score of or the marbling imf of the bulls that we're uh, leasing and we've done ai on a couple of occasions and used the higher ones we've just finished ai 500 heifers uh six months ago and uh using pheasantry um a bull that's uh, i think he's 6.1 in imf now so one of the high higher bulls in the breed just to give us a bit of a a ramp up as well i hope they don't start tasting like wagyu's um steven <laughs> <laughs> i think rangers valley will be coming to us we actually sign a contract with uh, rangers valley in june or july every year they come to us and uh, they want to buy our cattle and it's reported, reportedly we're in the top 5% of, of marbling uh, at Rangers Valley. So it, I'm sure it's paying us a premium uh, for our product and uh, we have a very good relationship with them and they're very good to deal with. Yeah, so you're getting a bit of consumer pull, aren't you, really, I suppose? Because, I, they, I mean, they'll be getting consumer signals and then they're passing that on to you. I think so, yes. Um, that's pretty important. So t tell us about um, relationship building because I, you know, um, 
a little bit uh, it's not just about pouring the marbling in genetically is it you've got to then do some work to make sure that uh, what you're doing is appreciated so um, it's important to keep a, a, a good relationship with a processor that appreciates what you're doing um, but at the same time I suppose you've got to get the right price for them as well Yes, I think um, we've been drafting out the cattle for Rangers Valley for probably 10 years now where, where we are the ones that are going through the animals. Uh, Doug Smith, our um, livestock manager, and myself check them and make sure that they're everything structurally fine. Obviously, out of the 500 steers plus that we sell to them every year, there are some that don't make the grade either from a structural point of view or a type. You know, there might be some that are too early maturing um, or just too lean. So that we're trying to we're trying to supply them with something that'll stand up in the environment where what that that'll do the job that they want. So we never, you know, out of seventy steers, there might be you know four or five that get pulled pulled back. So, because we don't want to send them anything that won't, and, um, um, and so you're doing the select, you're selecting them for them, and that's basically you're standing behind your what you're doing. Um, they don't send a buyer down or someone down to class them. No, they don't. No, no, because uh, so I that's think a, that's, we've got the runs on the board there. That's pretty amazing. That uh, you know that's happening because obviously. Um, you know, you know that um, you've got to put the right ones on the truck, don't you? Well, there's no Which point you... to them. It doesn't help them if we do the wrong thing. So, we, you know, it's a team. I guess it's a team effort, isn't it? You try and do the right thing by everybody along the supply chain, really. So, um, Stephen, uh, you obviously grow some grass down there. And, um, you know, I've got a bit of an attitude about growing grass. I think that's sort of primary production and perhaps the beef that are on eating the grass are secondary and uh, uh, you've already talked about you know evaluating and creating a relationship forward um do you regard your beef enterprise perhaps as a bit of a secondary industry and your grass growing as a primary industry uh yeah to some extent i do i think um i've tried to learn a lot from the dairy industry about growing grass and harvesting grass because, I mean, they're, you know, they're setting the benchmarks for that. And um, so that's why we've gone. We've got, um, we really basically run five mobs on the farm. We've got a mob of uh, pregnant heifers at the moment. We're running a mob of pregnant heifers, um, a mob of uh, young cows, and then our mob, a mob of older cows, and then uh, our two mobs of yearlings, her heifers and the steers. So... So with 54 paddocks, you sort of uh, got the opportunity to uh, to graze for two or three days and um, and uh, give paddocks a rest, I guess. So we're sort of giving paddocks a rest for uh, up to about 34 days in winter and about um, 18, 20 in spring, I guess, on average. Um, and so just to put that into perspective for listeners from other parts of Australia, really, I suppose, um, how much how much area do you have to do all that on? Uh, we're on about 950 hectares and we're running so, uh, about 1,050 breeding cows plus their, uh, well, in spring there's 1,050 uh, cows calving plus their calves 
and then a thousand uh, from from the previous year's crop. Basically, the steers start going out in October, and uh, we basically keep most of our heifers and mate them as well. So we get up to about thirty-two DSE equivalent in uh, spring, prior, you know, sort of uh, September, oh, and in. Uh, <laughs> In winter, we're carrying about 18 when, whenever we've basically got dry stock. And over the last 10 years, we've averaged 550 kilograms of beef per hectare. So, you know, in, on Australian terms, that's right up there, isn't it? And um, so tell us a little bit more about, you know, the the program on pasture. You, you do a little bit of irrigating. You've got some area under irrigation and... Um, and tell us a bit about your agronomy and some of your principles on how you do that. Um, we've got about um, 15% of the farm, 160 hectares under irrigation, which I think um, we did have a potato grower leasing land on our property for 10 or 15 years, doing 100 acres a year. And I caught on to that and thought, well, it would be a great asset to have a system where we could... Uh, irrigate through the summer to put our wieners on and, and save um, having to cut a lot of silage or hay and uh, and feed it out to them. So I think it's more cost effective. Um, where we are, the water is very shallow. It's, it's it, ball it, water, underground water, and it's very shallow, so it's, it's relatively cheap to pump. And uh, it, it sort of helps secure our stocking rate and... and and balance out and give us the opportunity to make sure our wieners are always going forward as well. And obviously gives you that opportunity to take them on up to 500 kilos really, does it? Is that? Well, it does. It allows you to power through the, the, the I guess, that weaning phase. And then um, as we go into the autumn, or well, once, once we've got our autumn break, they go on to dry land pastures and... Um, and finish the other end, you know, October, November, December, uh, before they go off to the to ranges. So it's sort of a, establishing them as weaners and then helping them finish them before they go to the feedlot. You mentioned before that it's sandy country that needs some feed. You're doing some sort of things with uh, rest and stuff to look after the country. What, what sort of stuff do you feed the grass on? Well, um... Basically, we're trying to get our P levels to about 15, 18 a P. We're sort of somewhere around that at the moment. We've sort of had to be increasing it over the last four or five years. Um, and our country's very deficient in most nutrients, so we're putting out potassium um, both autumn and spring, actually, because we've found a, a significant response even in the autumn. Only putting out about 10, 10 units in the autumn and about uh, oh, 10 or 15 in the autumn and around 25 in the spring of K. And um, we're, we're liming country every five to 10 years as well. Um, and and we actually all, we actually use, a, uh, because our country's so deficient in a lot of new, uh, minerals, we're also using an all trace bolus, which is um, a product that's uh, proven to be very successful in um, maintaining the uh, vitamin, minerals and vitamins in the animal's gut too because uh, sandy soils are very copper deficient and deficient in selenium 
magnesium, cobalt, you name it, it's deficient. So we're having so to feed, a- feed a lot of nutrient <clears throat> into the animals and the soils, basically. And that bolus, that's um, that's a, a custom one for you, or is it just an off-the-shelf? What product is that? I can't tell you the manufacturer. Actually, it's just called Old Trace Bolus. So it's um, righto. Yeah, it's no used a lot in the dairy oh. industry, and um, and uh, both my neighbour and, and ourselves have both done trials on them on our country, and um, we've increased conceptions by like five, eight percent, and also weight gain. Um, yeah, by, yeah, maybe about five percent plus. So we've 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 done the proper trials with control groups and stuff, and and now it's just not a questionable thing. We do it every year. And so, um, regurgitation on those. What's your procedure of putting them in? Do you do you, some people I've heard actually write the animal's number on them and stuff and put them in and then put them in a holding out, or do you not worry about all that? No, we don't seem to worry about that. Um, no, uh, Doug. Doug Smith, uh, our livestock manager, he, he does most of it. He's got the skill set that uh, works, and uh, so yeah, doesn't seem to be a problem. So you you understand your plants pretty well. What what species do you grow, and what do you like? Uh, well, we're we're a perennial based system. Our, our pastures are based on mostly holdfast uh, GT phalaris. Um, Coxfoot, um, perennial ryegrass, uh, subclovers, some chicory, plantain, and lucin is what we're uh, trying to keep going. Um, and that's why we're doing a bit of soil yep. seeding, just helping to top up pastures that were more recently under potatoes, which uh, it's hard to get ryegrass established in those ex potato paddocks because of. Um, the potato grower tends to turn the soil, plough with a mullboard plough plow and turn the soil upside down and put the more acidic soil on top. And also potatoes are notorious for burning up uh, organic matter because of the amount of nitrogen that's used in the system too. So it's sort of, um, we're trying to regenerate where the potatoes have been, I guess, but but basically, it's got us to a point where our pastures are very productive, and and obviously that's true because of the stocking rates we're carrying, I guess. So, um, very interesting pasture approach, um, and I suppose you know Western Victoria, and particularly here, we grow summer crops to get us um, more protein during those summer months. But um, you're not planting summer crops; you're just uh, topping pastures up and. Uh, is that how it works? Uh, yeah, well, I think I think with the rotation, uh, you know, time-controlled grazing system, you're tending to keep plenty of leaf area in it. And the and the 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 phalaris and the coxfoot are so deep rooted that um, even through the summer, most summers will stay green. Not always, but um, if you do get any rain, they'll they'll spark up again. So you're producing reasonable quality feed. But I guess that's the advantage of the. Uh, irrigation system that you're still you're growing that quality and that's where our wieners are come uh, you know december january the the wieners are on the best feed and uh, and continuing to to perform so it's sort of like a self the, the irrigation is a self feeder in itself basically 
the the that runs around. There's boats on the pivot which push the wire down. So you we sell we're sell grazing. You know, they definitely get moved every two days on the pivot, and um, yeah, so that's the way it works basically. Yeah, so just to go into grazing management for a minute, and um, your country be very, uh, be, being sandy would have originally been quite depleted in carbon, and um, and some of the cation exchange capacity required to run a, the sort of in, the sort of uh, grazing or the sort of enterprise you're running on it. Um, what sort of things have you been doing to you know address environment and carbon issues and um, and things in, along that well, along that line? I guess um, I guess the the time controlled grazing system and and allowing plants to go to to grow to their potential. I mean every every season we'll lock up a couple of paddocks in the system and let them go to seed. And uh, for example, this year we had a cox paddock that went um, from being grazed down to you know one and a half ton to the hectare. And, and we let it go to seed. It would, been, would have been four to five hundred mils high, and thick as it could stick across the paddock. And in doing that, you know that's increasing the root mass below ground, and 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 creating momentum for the following year. So it's about, I think, working with the plant, trying to develop those root systems, and and then increasing the carbon capture and storage in the soil. And also the water holding capacity in the soil, and the biological uh, activity in the soil, and so then you end up capturing more rainfall and producing more feed. So our actual uh, organic matter is increasing in our soils, and our productivity is improving every year too. Do you do you go around monitoring the paddocks and um, and assessing them and seeing which ones you need to? you know, give a spell to and have a rest? Or is it something that you do in a diary system and just say this one needs a rest because it hasn't had one for a while? Um, oh, for some years we did have a grazing chart and we we recorded, you know, where every mob went and how long they were in the paddock for and how long, you know, before we went back there and that. But now I guess we've got a handle on how we manage it. Um, so... You, we basically have got a fence hopper on our utes so that we can drive the whole farm without opening a gate and check paddocks. And, and we monitor, um, we're always assessing paddocks, not just the amount of feed that's in the paddock, but um, the fragility of the paddocks too and how the species are going within the paddock. So you won't necessarily graze the paddock with the most feed in it. You'll graze the paddock that... Um, where you're not going to damage um, the understory in the paddock or the different species. So there's, it's, it's quite a, a few things to consider, I guess, before uh, grazing a paddock. Yeah. So you, yeah, you'll move, you'll get to an an, a paddock that's perhaps been designated as a rotation and decide to skip it every now and again and jump around a bit. Yeah, jump around a bit in order to, to, to help, you know, um, the long-term sustainability of that particular paddock, I guess. Yeah, to look after yeah. things and nurture them a bit. Okay, Stephen, um, we're getting we're getting through the time and um, we always end up the Raw Rag podcast with um, mistakes, masterpieces and mentors. What mistakes have you made? 
Well, plenty, Tom. My dad used to say anybody not making mistakes is not doing anything, so I thought that was uh, a, truth, <laughs> a true point. Um, Letting yourself off the mistake straight away, you are, by the sounds. <laughs> I, uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes I, I, I made, and I probably only did it because I had health problems at the time, um, I ended up employing a very good person um, who I've already talked about. Um, if you've got good people around you, I think it helps you to work on the business and not in the business so much so that you've got time to, uh, to, to study and learn, educate yourself and, um, and, and improve the outcomes on, on the, in the business. I think you really need to get um, to as many field days, seminars and I don't know, you know, where educating yourself is so important really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So your your mistake was not employing someone early enough, is that what you... Oh, I think so because I put my health under, you know, trying to do too much, I think, and um, it, it'll let, you know... I think you need a lo- uh, you need a fair bit of help. I mean, we use contractors and stuff, but in a livestock business, you're always working with the animals, and it's handy to uh, to have extra help to uh, to manage things. Also, to get capital projects, like to have the grazing system we've got, we've had to do a lot of fencing, water infrastructure, and stuff, and it's 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 hard to manage all that on, on your own, basically. So what masterpieces have you um, achieved, Stephen? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I was talking to my eldest daughter, Marty, about this, and um, she said my she thought my one of my masterpieces was that we've um, achieved a business, I suppose, that we're, we've now, um, I guess we've expanded over the years and bought more blocks and land and stuff and, and justified employing people, and that's helped us... Uh, establish a work-life balance I guess um, where you get time for you to look after your health to exercise and have leisure and some holidays and um, and that sort of thing so instead of working constantly and wearing yourself out in life I guess yeah that's probably something that um, we all need to take on deck from time to time and um, a good thing to have mastered yes um, oh, there's one other thing I think uh, I guess um, some years ago, the Rangers Valley actually uh, flew us up to Brisbane and, and put us up at the Marriott, actually with the Jacksons from Woolsthorpe at the time too. And um, we both had uh, a high marbling, the highest marbling si- uh, steers that they'd ever had at Rangers Valley. And ours at, uh, at the time was a marble score nine. So I guess wow. I saw that a bit of a masterpiece. And the other one, I mustn't forget my wife. Um, <laughs> she's been a great uh, support and encouragement to uh, our business, of course, and, and my two daughters have been uh, a, a masterpiece. Well done on that. So mentors? I'd say um, my parents, um, particularly my dad, who was a um, very innovative and entrepreneurial man, and um, I think, you know, when you grow up with someone like that, your socialisation your or your apprenticeship that you do with your father on a farm is so important to helping you uh, 
establish yourself and and the way you think and uh, help you uh, in your life. And also my older brother Chris, who's um, I talk to him often. He's a, a wise head on relatively young shoulders. And a couple of my neighbours, Colin and Jeff, um, were always chewing the fat and talking about agriculture and our systems. And and um, we've 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 shared courses, um, different courses, RCS and uh, beef check, and you know many many different courses over the journey and so we know each other's businesses inside out and 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 challenging each other on issues and stuff um has been very favorable to to to, you know to improving our um our farming systems i suppose well thank you very much Stephen. thanks for being on the raw egg podcast today and uh, I know very well from um, conferences that we have and catch up that the team members, you know, highly regard your um, comment and thoughts all the time. You're quite re- highly regarded within the team and um, you've got a wonderful way of implementing quite sophisticated things in a very, very simple way. You could drive onto Stephen's property and think that it was very simple and, and not much was going on, but there's a hell of a lot going on behind the scenes. So thank you very much for coming in today and um, we'll catch up soon. Thanks very much for having me, Tom. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.